So uh, okay. that, that, see, that's what I was wondering about our, our the the differences between our editions because this is the ten year anniversary. You guys have the twentieth anniversary, and there's no prologue in this book. Oh yes. Sorry. And I think the introduction was just like talking this. about how um, I think it might have been just him talking about getting these published. Yeah, apparently they're also doing a 30th anniversary in which uh, Zack Snyder uh, recuts the book. He makes it yeah. like four times bigger and longer yeah. and uh, adds a whole bunch of stuff that nobody needs. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, welcome everyone to Page and Screen. Um, we read the book, we watch the movie, and we offer our unwarranted opinions. My name is Calvin DeSilva, and I've been craving fry bread all week. My name is Doug, and um, I'm native, so I know it all already. So, <laughs> My name is Ashton, and I'm really glad that Adam Beach got the opportunity to flesh out his character for Slipknot a little bit more. Hi, I'm Jesse Mully, and my dad looks nothing like Charles Bronson. All right, guys, so this is a book club um, and a movie club. On this episode, we are discussing The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven. Uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven is a collection of short stories written by Sherman Alexie and published in 1993. Portions of these stories, particularly This Is What It Means to Say Phoenix, Arizona, were adapted to the feature film Smoke Signals, directed by Chris Eyre and released in 1998. We're going to get into the Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven. Um, just as a disclaimer, in the book, Terminal Lexi refers to himself, uh, to the characters as Indians. While we acknowledge that that's not the correct terminology, if we do uh, refer to Indian, um, or if we use the word Indian, we will be referring to events directly from the book or quoting the book directly. Yeah. Like, like if it, if it pops up naturally, like if you're, if you're taking directly from the book, I don't see why saying an Indian would be, would be problematic or rude or anything. Yeah. Just, just make sure everything's said that, uh, that you're not being a dick about it. Um, all right. So let's get into the book. So yeah, typically um, I would offer a synopsis. Um, of the book here, but this is a collection of short stories, so that's hard to do. However, what I can say is that almost all of the stories take place on the Spokane Indian Reservation in Washington, USA. Most of the stories feature recurring characters, including Victor Joseph and Thomas Bills the Fire, and they are a meditation on the cultural traditions and history of the Native American people. The stories feature surreal imagery, dream sequences, and flashback, and often take on a poetic prose structure okay let's get into it what did everyone think i i liked it um i actually didn't like it as much as i thought i would people tend to talk about alexi like writing style and prose and i found that certain parts of the book i found it was really hard to follow certain parts of the book that may should have should have maybe been a uh, empathetic like emotional part of the book became a intellectual part of the book as i was trying to follow what was happening or I'd have to reread something because I'd be like, wait a second. So now they're flying through the air. Like what's, what's exactly happening. And this happens a few times in the book. Um, that being said, there were parts of the book that I absolutely love. And uh, overall I enjoyed the book. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Doug. I think this book is a mixed bag. I think that you're going to get a lot of great stories in it. And I think you're going to get a lot of stories that you're not as 
fond of and everybody's going to have a different opinion as to what they liked but i think that overall i did enjoy the book and i enjoyed the way all the uh, characters and the stories interconnect remembering like when you're starting off you start remembering oh wait that's that's junior from the first story or whatever right so i, I really did enjoy that yeah, I'm with you guys on that. I really enjoyed the book. And the reason why I enjoyed it also is a reason why I, parts of it I didn't enjoy. And that's because uh, there were short stories all in one book. The first thing is I liked that format because it was something new each time I was reading a different story and then coming back to finding certain stories were connected. But at the same time, uh, for me, it was a little bit jarring because I had to remember certain characters or I would forget an event happened and that took place in there. So I would go back and read through that. But yeah, I'm with you. There's parts of the book I liked, and yeah, I I think I agree with uh, with most of the points here. Um, like Asher said, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, there are some stuff that that's really strong, and and that you know I think I connected with on an emotional level. Um, whereas you know to to Doug's point, a lot of it did seem like they felt more intellectual, than, and some of those were a little harder to connect to. And yeah, there are some. Uh, stories in here that feel less like stories and more like stream of consciousness writing or like like I said earlier like a poetic uh, prose kind of structure and those are a those were a little hard to follow but uh, but all in all it was it was a great book to read it's uh, you know it's a perspective that I don't think I actually read a lot of um, you know I've tried to uh, pick up a few indigenous books um, written by Canadian authors, and uh, and that's super interesting, but never one from a Native American point of view. And yeah, it was it was really interesting to read. Glad I got a chance to read it. Did everyone have a favorite story they want to go into? Um, I think my favorite story was the approximate size of my favorite tumor. And that was the story about James Many Horses being diagnosed with cancer and his character is essentially he he doesn't take anything seriously and he's always making jokes and his his partner ends up leaving him because of the fact that uh he's not taking anything seriously and all that but um like i said it was an interesting story to read it was very darkly humorous and i think that's what i really gravitated toward overall it was still a touching story at the end of it all and i i, th I thought that was probably the most emotionally invested i think i got in any of the stories i really liked that one especially it felt almost like when I was reading that one, the ending, the ending was pretty emotional in a way that was like almost surprising to me because mm -hmm. I felt that like, and maybe this is like doing it an injustice or something, but I felt like a lot of them had a lot of the endings just didn't like, I don't know, like they didn't have as much of an emotional impact or it almost felt like he was holding back from like offering this emotional sense of closure but that one it was almost it was a little surprising to me because um the nature of the story is um him surviving with cancer by himself but slowly dying as a result of it and then as he's kind of on his deathbed she comes back into his life um, and that was surprising to me the fact that she came back to him like i honestly thought the story would end on a much bleaker note mm -hmm. but the fact that she came back and that they wrapped that up i thought was very touching and yeah i i agree it it it's probably my favorite one too but i might find a different one to talk about <laughs> jesse uh yeah so um it's between the approximate size of my favorite tumor and the trial of thomas builds a fire i think i have to say the trial of thomas builds a fire is actually probably my favorite um short story in here because it was so abstract in the way 
Thomas goes on trial to kind of bring to light the corruption going on and uses all these stories from the past to garner attention to what he's been trying to uh, say his whole life. And I just loved the defiance in it. I thought like it was kind of like a little like uh, moment for me reading it because I was happy that he got the attention he needed, what he wanted to say. Yeah, so I like both of those. Uh, the, the Thomas uh, Builds a Fire one is a little strange because initially I took it as literal. He he had kidnapped somebody, like a forcible confinement or something, and then he was put on trial, and then he was in jail for 20 years, and then they put him on trial. And initially I, I had that as like, this is literally what's happening. Like, this is literally what happened to Thomas. But But I actually think the more I thought about it afterwards, I think this is just connects with... If, if you follow uh, Thomas Bildefire's story or his character, he always takes, like he takes half truths. Like there's a, like a, a, a mystical side to him. And then he, he extrapolates that into a larger, ultimately fake story. And so I think this is just a part of that character because in a literal sense, that wouldn't have happened. Like a forcible confinement charge is a misdemeanor in most places, sadly. Because the thing is, is a forcible confinement charge is usually connected with something else. Anyways, that's that's entirely uh, another thing. So so he would have got like a year in prison for that. Another thing is he wouldn't be in prison for 20 years and then have a trial. And then he wouldn't be put away forever at the end of that trial for killing somebody 100 years before he was born. Like, as I said, some of these, some parts of this book are like, like, like what's happening? Like my, my brain's like exploding. Like I'm trying to follow this action. And then as I thought about it, I'm like, oh, this is just kind of like a, like in my mind, it fits in like the overall themes of the book. Two themes show up, uh, one of storytelling with Chalmers and bodies, and then the other one of resilience and like fighting against the like something, right? And I think those three themes show up in that story and i think that's why that story was important and i think that's why i really liked it well but ultimately i i don't think it actually happened as as or, or it also could have been that's another thing about thomas's character there's a portion where you where he's like telling prophecy and things that will happen and i kind of almost feel that that may have been a part of that as well so anyways it's i like that i also like the other one about the um about tumors i thought though it was a beautiful story I actually, I think that would have happened in real life. I know this is a fiction story, but the thing is, is relationships in a indigenous community aren't the same. And people like James Manyhorse, you know, the thing is, is people make that same criticism against me as I joke all the time, right? And and there are people on my reserve who joke all the time. And there are people who you cannot have a straight conversation with. And that just ties into like resilience. Sometimes I'll make a joke and people call it dark humor, and it is dark humor, but I'll make an entirely inappropriate joke about something uh, that I should be mourning. And I know Native people do that. And I think it has something to do with like our culture of like being resilient. And so like anybody who knows me would say, yeah, Doug, Doug, Doug is never serious about anything basically ever. And so I took a lot from James Manyhorse where he gets this cancer diagnosis, but every time somebody brings it up, or every time it's mentioned, he makes a joke about it as like a deflection, as a means to like take control of something that hurts him on the inside. And Norma's different. She's like more pragmatic. In that one story, she talks about being a warrior. And I think she's different from James because she needs to tackle it in her own way. 
And I think she leaving James is this whole story arc where she travels all over Western United States. And ultimately, like a lot of indigenous relationships, despite all of that trouble, she still finds her way back to him. And I feel like that was the perfect story of that type of, and this is another theme uh, about love and hate. Like they cut that kind of, they, he always juxtaposes those two things. And that's like when normal shows back up at the end, she says, is that like, like I, this is my way of dealing it with it. And I both love and hate you. Like, I, sorry if I'm getting too crazy about this, but that's, that's just my general thought about those two uh, stories that you guys mentioned. Yeah, like like I said, I think the approximate size of my favorite tumor, it's probably is my favorite story. But one I did want to talk about that I really liked was um, the only traffic signal on observation doesn't flash red anymore. And that's kind of the story of um, uh, this young basketball player on the reservation, Julius, who I think is in high school over the, uh, during the course of the story yeah. and, is, and is like just Julius Windmaker and he's kind of uh, just a incredible basketball player they kind of see him as having this amazing career ahead of him but it ends with him kind of succumbing to alcoholism or like starting to drink and going down a path of of alcoholism and uh it's brutally tragic but it brought it brought up a, a really interesting thing is that first of all like i have no frame of reference for what growing up on a reservation looks like but there's also just so many things about native american history that i had no idea about and i'll touch on the, this specifically um is the connection with that basketball has with a lot of these stories it comes up like very frequently and i it's something that i never even thought about but then i thought about this other book that i had read a few months ago called uh the only good indians by stephen graham jones He's a pretty popular author. It's kind of a horror, a horror novel, um, but basketball plays a really important part in that novel as well. And it really got me thinking. I was like, "Wow, is this just a common thing in Native American culture and and Aboriginal culture in Canada that like I had no idea about?" But yeah, I guess like I guess you know, obviously, if if people don't know, Doug is um, Siksika uh, here in Canada, so. He is Aboriginal, so he probably has more perspective on this than we do. But I did want to ask about that, about what the connection that basketball has with Indigenous culture. It's normal. You know, I, I, I'm now that I'm talking with you guys about this, I, it, it dawns on me that there are some things that I take for granted as just well, what you'd call tacit knowledge, like just knowledge I have about Native people. And, and, and see, that they're actually, one thing I did pick out is there are a lot of differences between the Spokane uh, Native people and the Blackfoot, but they're not so different that I couldn't relate to the 99% of this book, it felt like. And I didn't mention it earlier, but I think that had to be one of my favorite because it felt it felt so real and and yes there's a like like basketball and hockey maybe maybe not hockey so much in the um in the western united states and washington maybe i i don't know i actually couldn't really speak for the spokane people but for the blackfoot people basketball and hockey are like the two like major like if you're good at either one of them and, and that's what hit me so hard is because these heroes that we have so many local heroes who were the best on the reserve or the best Blackfoots player and they become like heroes. People talk about them. Like people would be like, yeah, back in the nineties, you should have saw Richard play or whatever. Right. And, and like, that's just something that I grew up hearing. Right. And so that's why that, that stuff hit me. 
And then the saddest part about that is so many stories of that happens where people are pretty good at hockey. People are pretty good at basketball. Maybe they're excellent at basketball or hockey, and maybe they have a chance to go to a college or university or play it further beyond, but they just succumb to alcoholism or they, or they have a kid at the age of 16 or something like that happens that just like, I remember talking to my, uh, my, my nephew and saying, you know, there's a lot of kids on the reserve who could have did something and they just, something happened, alcoholism, whatever. Right. And so that is a tragedy that uh, shows up in this book time and time again. It's a bit of a theme about like people not not being as great as they could be. And then there's that sadness there that that hits really close to home that people who could have did something and decided not to for any reason. Uh, like like I feel like I have some tacit knowledge that I realize now that that you guys probably don't have. So there were parts of this book that maybe didn't connect with you in the, in similar ways. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, the best writing kind of does this is it's something that is personal to the author, but the writing is so good that it immediately makes it feel personal to the reader, even though the reader has no frame of reference for it. As I was reading that stuff, it felt real, you know, and like, I don't know anything about growing up on a reservation, but it felt like the stuff that he was saying was genuine. And from like the small frame of reference that I had when he started bringing up basketball, I was like, oh, like, this is a thing. Like, this is definitely a thing that like, I vaguely have heard about, but I've never really thought about it. And and seeing it in this book play out, it felt very raw and very like real and emotional. It it also um, connects with uh, the the fact that um, so and this was I think this was the overall theme of the story. Maybe you guys picked up, but I think apathy was the overall theme of that story. Um, which 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 the the title is called um, the only there you go traffic light on the reservation doesn't flash red anymore yeah. yeah so like people let a traffic light burn out and nobody cares right but uh, i i feel like that also connects with the story of uh, julius where his story and, and i think that's also another reason why people gravitate to sports on reserves because even now even now people don't have the technological resources that other people don't have right on the reserve where you have a couple things you have friends and you have uh, basketball courts. And if you don't have a basketball court, you have a hoop in your backyard. And uh, during the during the winter, your uncle will uh, will freeze your backyard. That's what people do. But that's why I think that's why it becomes so important to native culture. And then there's like fierce rivalries. Like I grew up in a small community. It's we called it a town site, and it was like 22 houses uh, that made up a small town. But it wasn't really a town. It was a town site. And in those 22 houses, like all of the kids, this is, of course, before pre-internet or whatever. Well, maybe, maybe not. Internet was alive and well at the time, but not on my reserve. Like that's because uh, that's always slightly technologically behind. But back then, people used to freeze their backyards during the winters and, and like families, like my cousin who lives over in this house versus your cousin who lives over in this house and you and then they have like this fierce rivalry and, and that actually happened like people would and then we had basketball nets during the during the summer months and like same deal it's like my cousins versus your cousins or even it bro broke down to like last names like many heads winnipeg versus the uh, crow child calf it wasn't just a normal rivalry it was like a it was like a like a multi-year rivalry of between two families where every summer we would have 
one long basketball game that entailed the entirety of the summer. And then the next year, we'd have that same rivalry and it would just pick up again, right? And that's what, that's what happened. Like that, that's why it mattered that people on my home reserve, people who were the best on my home reserve, they became legends. Like there was a guy, and when I was growing up, everybody talked about Jay. There's this guy named Jay who was the best. And they're like, Jay, Jay was the best. And then before Jay, there's a guy named Troy who was the best. Slightly before my time, I knew who, I knew who Troy is. I didn't know him personally. And then after Jay was, uh, was Jay's nephew who was the best. Like, that's how it was. Like, it was like everybody knew who the best was on the reserve. And I could even tell you, like, you know, 25 years after the fact, I could tell you who the best was in the reserve at any given time. It's really strange. And that's why that, that really connected with me because, like, like, I don't want to talk bad about anybody specifically, but I can tell you that a lot of those guys who, who were considered the best hockey player or the best basketball player, a lot of them ended up getting arrested, ended up getting into alcohol, uh, never, never went to college. Some of them did go to, some of them did actually go to like university level, but some, but a lot of them didn't, a lot of them got lost like this Julius kid. And that's why it's a, it's pretty good, pretty good. So sorry. Like, I feel like I'm going to be talking a lot in this one. So if you guys want to like jump in, just let just say something, man. You know, you're the only person here that has any real perspective on this stuff. So, so it's more than welcome. What about Ashton? The uh... that's true. Ashton, <laughs> you must know a lot about this. <laughs> yeah. Like, I could actually probably do a whole soliloquy on every single one of these stories. The ones that really touched me were the ones that I were bouncing around my head afterwards. The one that really got me was the seek witnesses, secrets, and not. And that's the one where this guy named Jimmy Vincent gets murdered. And uh, sorry, I don't remember the names off the top of my head. Uh, The father and son have to go to uh, Spokane to speak to a detective. Now, initially, I thought, oh, yeah, obviously, he doesn't know. Because that's another thing, too, is in a small community like a reservation, somebody will be like, somebody burnt down that house. And the police will investigate. Nobody will know. But then you'll start hearing rumors, uh, you know, Joseph down the street or whatever, or... uh, Graham's grandson or whatever somebody would be like yeah so that's who did it was like there was there'd be rumors surrounding that right and initially I thought that that's what that story would be about but then I reread it and there was a point where the son asked the father who killed uh, Joseph Vincent or Jimmy Vincent sorry he asked him and then he pauses like there's this really telling moment and I actually after thinking about it I think that this is not ne- merely a story about knowing a rumor. I think actually uh, the father does know exactly what happened. But then that the story becomes this idea of like, we need to protect the community and we need to protect something, right? And that's, that's, that goes beyond reservations, of course. Like that, that, but I, I feel like that's, I feel like that's a story that really bothered, didn't bother, I didn't want to say bothered me, but I, I thought about it afterwards. I'm just like, yeah, that's really interesting. Like it's, a, I totally see that happening, right? So. Uh, what what about like some some other themes you guys saw? I don't know about specifically themes, but what I what I will say is I think there there is like um kind of a historical context that that goes with this book that isn't explicitly explained. I mean, obviously, like there's the greater historical context of what Native Americans had to go through in the founding of America and the and the last three hundred years. But there's also just like really specific things that kind of crop up every once in a while. And I found that I was pulling up Google to like look some of these things up because I had no frame of reference for it. So like I didn't know what the BIA was like I had to Google 
what the Bureau of Indian Affairs were, the Indian Health Services or whatever. And so I had to Google all that stuff and then like found all of this stuff. Like I had no idea that there was forced sterilization of Native right. American women in the 70s. Like didn't know that. And just this like really horrifying facts um, in history. That's something that was really, um, it was handled very smartly in the book. It didn't feel like this like history lesson. It felt like he was, he was very much telling these day-to-day stories and every once in a while, you would kind of get this sense of like these things that aren't right here, like these injustices that you inherently see cropping up in the story. These aren't right. But there's also this historical context that he kind of peppers in every once in a while that make all of these injustices seem more like they're credible and and it, and it lends credence to the to the stuff that he's talking about. And it's just... That stuff I thought was really well written, really cleverly handled was the way that he inserts historical context into the story. But yeah, I don't know if anyone else found stuff like that. Yeah, I did too. I think I think the book did a really good job of making potentially outsiders be able to see some of the struggles that Native American people have suffered through throughout the years. And I think that after reading this book, I'm a lot more of an idea not that i know it all or anything like that but i definitely am a lot more knowledgeable of them from just reading this book alone right i really appreciated reading the book just to have like growing context and knowledge on that aspect i'm with calvin there i had to look up a couple of these terms like the bureau of indian affairs because they were mentioned so casually and then as you look this stuff up you go deeper down the rabbit hole and like yeah forced sterilization it was just mentioned so casually in it at first I thought, oh, is there like, why, why would they do that? And then you, you know, you kind of like, oh, wait, are they, is it because, and then you get into researching it and you're just like, oh, this is sick. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I didn't like how it was mentioned so casually. It's like, yeah, it's a humanitarian crime. And yeah, it happened in the seventies, which is, it's just yeah, like horrifying. that. Like, it's like, there's, you know, generations that are alive today that are still, suffer like you know not even alive today i mean like people's parents and fathers that are suffering from the effects of that and it's like yeah the, uh, well l- let me guys uh make you even more depressed there's evidence that it happened up until at least 2003 and yeah, I, oh my and, god and it's uh there's even more evidence and, and by the way this isn't an american problem this happened in, in canada as well See, and that's another thing where it brings me back to tacit knowledge. I, I didn't have to look up any of this stuff. I, of course, I'm not American, but I knew what the Indian affairs was. I also knew what the health, uh, Indian health was because we have similar institutions in Canada that work the same way. And with the extra sad uh, idea that not only do they work the same way, but they also have similar historical crimes against like, <laughs> like it's a... You know, it's not just an American problem. It was very much a American and Canadian problem. The forced sterilization started in the 1930s. In the 1930s, there's this weird eugenics, like people were excited about eugenics for some reason. And a lot of like prominent doctors decided to start utilizing some of those theories of eugenics. And, and the only people that they did it against were uh, black people and native people. It, it was also born of like at least somewhat white supremacy. I, I don't know the exact history, but the, this is just knowledge floating around in the back of my head. Like when a woman had a child, they didn't want that woman to have six other children. And since their education system was below par 
and seeing that some of these women slash girls who got pregnant were pretty young. It was a form of like, we, we don't want the government to be forced to spend money on big families. And then beyond that, they also had uh, what's called the 60s scoop. That's something that's showing up in the news nowadays. But back in the 1960s, if they thought that the mother couldn't raise a child, they simply just took the child and gave it to a white family or sent it like to Germany or something or, you know, wherever. So, so these are just some historical contexts. And as I said, it's one of those things where I don't really think about it. But like, as I was reading, I'm just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That seems like a completely normal situation. Uh, Just a nice depressing history history note. There were some differences, of course, but there were a lot of similarities. But in some ways, and this isn't for all Native, that's the nice thing about being a treaty Indian. And that's the actual legal term, by the way, treaty Indian, is there's a legal aspect to they have to make sure I don't have cavities. They have to make sure that I have glasses. But in the United States, they didn't have those same social nets for a lot of these reservations. And so like if you broke your arm on a reservation and you didn't have the, you know, 80 bucks to get your arm fixed, then you didn't get your arm fixed, right? Like that was the situation. Unlike here in Canada, where we did have that social safety net where if I broke my arm, which I did as a young person and my parents couldn't necessarily spend the 150 bucks to get a cast or however much it costs to set a bone and get a cast, they would just do it for free. But that's not a native thing. That's a Canadian thing. Like if Ashton broke his arm as a little kid, I went to a, uh, so yay, social safety net. So, <laughs> but in, anyways, so there's that tacit knowledge of like, yes, this happened. Yes, it happened in Canada. The 60 scoops happened. Residential schools happened. And uh, it's not a great history. So good times. Good times had by all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, everybody. Sorry for bringing down the... Uh... <laughs> no, it's fine. I, I don't I don't understand. I don't know how we could possibly be on, a, on any higher note. Let me let me do bring up some stuff because we've been talking a lot about like the atrocities and the depressing history of the United States and Canada. There's a lot of atrocities, but there, there's some really beautiful stuff in this book. Stuff that really touched on, yes, yeah, so there's talking about love and hate, right? And and that shows up as well. It, if you take a good hard look at all of the women characters in this book, you see that they tend to be the stabilizing force in their individual stories. Like there's a tragic side to that, of course, but I really love that portrayal because that portrayal is 100% true. And I'm not saying that Native men don't take care of their children. That is not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying that more often than not, you you leave it up to the mother to take care of you. And in some ways, Native communities in North America, worldwide, when I say worldwide, I'm thinking about the Maori and these New Zealand Aborigines. These women have now turned a predominantly paternalistic society into a maternalistic society. The most powerful women on my reserve growing up were grandmothers. They maybe they didn't have political power, but they were the final voice of a lot of decisions that happened on the reserve. And that shows up in this book a couple of times. And then there are times like Norma, when she shows up in the story she's in, you show her as this level-headed woman. And I, and I love that. And then there's other things like potential. And I guess potential as well is a theme that shows that Aboriginal people have so much potential. The other side of that theme was a lost potential, right? But I love the fact that because I see that too. Like I see so much potential and I used to work with kids and like, I'd look at the drawings of some of these kids and be like, don't go out partying, focus on your drawing. You can actually do something with how naturally gifted you are at this particular thing. 
And then there'd be people like, as I said, be excellent at basketball. Like I'm talking like American universities could come in and pick up these guys and they just never did anything. And it, it's just that beautiful potential. And then the sadness of the lost potential. Like those are some themes that I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, there's so many themes. Now that I'm thinking, before we started this, I was thinking to myself, I feel like I can't think of a single theme. But now as I'm thinking about it, I'm just like, yeah, there's so many themes floating around in this book. But uh, yes, yeah, Smoke Signals was an excellent movie. Uh, why don't you throw yeah. us to that one? Sure. Um, so Smoke Signals is mostly an adaptation of the short story. This is what it means to say Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, and it follows the plot of that short story pretty closely. Victor Joseph and Thomas Bills the Fire grow up together on the Coeur d'Alene Indian Reservation in Plummer, Idaho. When they were infants, Victor's father Arnold rescues Thomas from a house fire that killed his parents. As Victor grows up, he sees his father become an alcoholic, assault his mother, and eventually abandon him in a fit of rage. Thomas sees Arnold as the hero who saved his life. Victor and Thomas grow up as friends, although there is an uneasy hostility between them. Arnold eventually dies in Phoenix, Arizona, and Thomas helps pay for Victor to go retrieve his ashes, on the condition that they have to go together. When they reach Phoenix, they meet Susie Song, who knew Arnold during his last years living in Phoenix. She gives them Arnold's ashes and tells Victor the confessions Arnold made to her that Victor never knew, including the truth that Arnold accidentally started the fire that killed Thomas's parents and that he also saved Victor's life that night. On their journey back to the reservation, Victor and Thomas reconciled with each other and with their memory of Arnold. Okay, um, what did everyone think of the movie? Smoke Signals. I liked it. It was good. Um, you got kind of a little bit more of the story. I think it draws from other stories to make it flesh out into a full feature-length movie, obviously. There mm -hmm. was aspects of other short stories that I saw. Yeah, I thought it was really good. It was kind of, it was a nice touching story. All the acting was like was very good in it. Doug has told me before we read this that this was kind of like this was a movie that everybody watched, that everybody was very familiar with out on on the reservation that he lived on. And I and I honestly I don't even think I'd even heard of it. Then the more I looked into it, I was surprised with how um, popular it actually is. It went to Sundance Film Festival. It got like awards at the festival and it was a really well-respected movie. Anyways, I, I really did enjoy the movie quite a bit. Jesse? Yeah, I did too. I kind of got like, I kind of like had my intention on the movie the entire time. I, I didn't drift at all watching it. It held my attention pretty nicely. And um, the good thing about it is that nothing had to be explained in it, humor or narratives. I just watched the movie and chuckled at some parts. And when it was over, I came out of it. I liked the movie. There's not too much I can say about it because Ashton kind of already stole my thunder here. But yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It was fantastic. I think I looked up smoke signals before I looked up the book and I just saw the cover of the DVD and there was something about just looking at the cover where I was like, this seems like it would be a fun movie. <laughs> just from the cover, it felt like a very 90s film. And I was like, oh, like this, this looks like it'll be fun. And then I read the book and, I, and the book was, you know, far more emotional than I was expecting. And I was like, how does this translate into this movie? And then when I watched the movie, I realized that they do a very good job of it because the movie 
does have this really intense emotional core, but there's also like a lot of aspects of levity from other short stories in the book. And they put it into this movie and it makes it really enjoyable and really entertaining. And it did feel like a very 90s movie. There's just something so inexplicable about that. The way it's shot, the way that the sound design and the way that the jokes kind of land. It felt very nostalgic, even though I didn't grow up with it. I totally see why this is such a popular film. Yeah, I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, as, as Ashton mentioned, you'd go to any native person's house. As I said, I grew up in a town set of 22 houses. Without a doubt, every one of those 22 houses had spoke signals in their VHS slash DVD collection. And it's just so strange that there are just some parts of, I guess, Aboriginal society that never translated beyond the borders of reserves. And not just my reserve, like this was all reserves. For instance, Once Were Warriors was the same thing. Everybody watched Once Were Warriors. Everybody knew Once Were Warriors. Uh, Blood In, Blood Out, again, for some reason, people just gravitated to that. Above the Rim, like there's a bunch, maybe not a bunch, but there are a few other movies that just reached beyond and became super massive hits within the reserve systems and then just never anywhere else. This was a movie, like there is not a single person. Like I'll I'll say that if you grew up near or close to a reserve, or you had family on reserve, you knew smoke signals. I remember the first time I watched this, we were at my friend Brett's house. Like there must have been about 20 to 25 of us all packed in watching this 27-inch television. All kids between the ages of 8 to like 23. And we all watched Smoke Signals. And that wasn't the only time I watched Smoke Signals. I probably, I probably watched it four dozen times in my life. So anyways, I kind of had the opposite effect of Calvin here, where he was reading the book and thinking, how is this going to be translated into a movie? And I was doing the opposite, where I knew the movie. And I'm thinking about the book being like, man, this might be a really slow book. Like, all they're just driving to, like, Arizona. Like, how are you going to put, how are you going to stuff that into 200 pages? Because I actually didn't know much about the book. When I opened the book, a lot of it was new to me. And I didn't realize that it was a collection of short stories. But anyways, so love the movie. Grew up with it. It's, like, a part of my DNA. And uh, I'm glad you guys got to check it out. Yeah, no, it was it was fantastic. There's this weird thing where it's like, did anyone else get this this like really 90s feel to it? So there's like a weird thing that I realized when I watched this that I'm like, oh, like this is a thing that movies just don't do anymore. When moments of like comedy are accentuated by the way it's shot or by the sound design, they'll have bumps in the score that kind of convey that something comedic is happening. Yeah. And I'm like, this is such a 90s thing. Like I don't see this happening. <laughs> you know, in modern films at all, it's so weird and so enjoyable to like watch. Like I said, it's a movie that felt nostalgic, even though I didn't grow up with it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it was it was great. You should also mention that the the movie was made in the '90s as well, so it's not like they're throwing yeah, back to it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's the weirdest part. Is <laughs> so uh, if anybody wants to jump in, because I'll I'll keep talking, but. There are some parts that are made funny. Like, I think it's a funnier movie to me than it is to you guys. The opening scenes where they have a radio station out of a camper van. And then there's one guy doing traffic on like... That was hilarious. Yeah. People might look at that and think, haha, funny. You know, they're back. And I'm just like, no, that's actually... Even to this <laughs> day, not, not joking, to this day, if you're in or around Six Sixago Nation, you can tune into the pirate radio station at Six Sixago Nation. And... Uh, like a lot of reserves have a pirate radio station. Some of them are small time operations where it's some guy with an antenna. It's funnier to me because I know it's so true. 
whereas other people might watch that and be like, haha, it's just obviously it's they're making native culture seem I can't think of a good term, but yeah, so so that stuff like that, like I like that that stuff made made me laugh. I, I was gonna say I, I definitely get that. I think like those moments were really funny to me, but even as I was laughing at them, I thought like this must be hilarious to people who grew up on a reservation. I could already like get that uh, that sense from it. I was just going to say, I really enjoyed the uh, the character dynamic between Victor and uh, Thomas. Obviously, that's drawn out a little bit in the book, too. Um, I, I especially like Thomas. I thought Thomas was hilarious in a lot of ways. I really enjoyed that character dynamic. It was a really good feel good ending by the end when they kind of reconcile because it starts off pretty rocky at the beginning. Victor doesn't want to have anything to do with Thomas. Adam Beach and uh, unfortunately I'm not familiar with the uh, actor who played Thomas. Evan Evan Adams. Evan Adams. I thought they did a fantastic job together. They were super fun to watch on screen together. (laughs) Yeah, no, um, I enjoyed it. It mixes like comedy and some sad aspects of it one thing that caught me that i didn't want to really um watch and i thought it was the part where he had to go and the trailer his dad's body was in just for me like when it deals with oh it's gonna smell bad or something like that it just really that was like the off-putting part of the movie for me even though like he's just in there and he's holding his breath and he's going through his dad's things it really irked me that scene out of all the entire movie but it's you know it's nice to have those different elements in it. And like Kelvin said, it's a very nineties movie. So it was something that wasn't overcomplicated. And because I already read the source material, I had a fun time watching it. So. Yeah. And, and you know what the, this is a, another really great film because um, this is one of the pro- probably few movies that had a all Aboriginal cast, m- sorry, all of the Aboriginal main casts, of course, Tom Skerritt isn't, isn't uh, a, <laughs> And that lady who played the gymnast, like they're not uh, native, but <laughs> like the main cast members were were all native and not like real natives too, not like you know, not like uh, Genghis Kong, John Wayne native or whatever. Right? And then not only that, the main production staff of this film were also all Aboriginal, and so like especially in the '90s, like nowadays you're seeing that a little bit more, like people are investing in Aboriginal media arts. But back in the 90s, that was absolutely unheard of. I think that's why there's also that warm spot in my heart, because I, I feel like it it reaches beyond that. And it tells a story that's like 100 percent like or, or as authentic as you can get it. There's so many parts that I was, I was watching because let me just tell you a story. There's a scene in that movie where Thomas is telling a story about fried bread and then um, Victor's mother rips it in half over her head. Right. This had completely exited my mind. But I remember as a kid, whenever somebody tore a fried bread in half as a joke or whatever, people would always pretend that that scene was happening, right? And it's such a strange thing that people gravitated. Like people would be like, here, you want half of my fried bread? And then they'd, they'd rip it just like they did in the, in the movie. And, and I had forgotten that was a thing that, that people did in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And not only that, like people said, hey, Victor, Hey, Victor, people called me Victor because I had big glasses. And, and at the <laughs> time I had long hair, like it, it's, it's funny. And, or people with close names, like Victoria, be like, Hey, Victoria, like, like they, it's like a meme, like, like a meme that, that native people understand. Like, as I said, I can go to anybody on any native person on the street and 99% of the time, even beyond that 99.99% of the time I'll say, Hey, Victor. And he'll know, he'll, he'll, he'll understand the reference. Right. That I, it was great rewatching this after all because I haven't watched this since like maybe like 2003 or 2002 or something like that. It's been a really long time. 
Oh, and, and sorry, another thing too is uh, when they're in the back of the uh, the bus, they get kicked in the back. There's like this racist moment or whatever. And then they start singing uh, John's, John Wayne's Teeth. John Wayne's Teeth. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, John Wayne. A drum group, an actual drum group re-recorded that and that became a mini hit on the reserves as well. People would would have in their cars John Wayne's teeth and they'd listen to it as they're driving. <laughs> on on our uh, pirate radio station, uh, 104.9, the Aber- uh, the nation station on Sixaga. The CRTC doesn't know about this, so please don't tell them. But that's like... A... <laughs> no one tell the CRTC. Yeah. CRTC, if you're listening, just, just turn away. This podcast right? is not for you. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways so that's actually a pirate radio station that's on my reserve currently and they they would play like john wayne's teeth they would play like indian car like they it's just so strange like thinking back now and looking at all of this stuff and being like man we took so much from this movie that you just don't think about right anyways mm-hmm. so so john wayne's teeth was like this song that was made in the movie and then got turned into a song afterwards got turned into an actual song okay. by an actual drum group called John Wayne's Teeth and it was like John Wayne's Teeth and then like yeah. they they I remember them being at at a powwow selling their John Wayne's Teeth uh, a cassette like like they cuz this was before the DVDs like cassettes where it was like listen to our newest single John Wayne's Teeth plus you know other <laughs> other aboriginal songs of ours <laughs> and like that like is. you you can buy for 10 bucks like the the John Wayne's Teeth single and people had it in their cars like probably at one point in my life like every car on the reserve probably had the John Wayne's T single and the Indian car single. Like, it's just so strange that like, <laughs> and, and, and of course that's, and see, that's another thing where like, obviously it was funny to you guys, but it's a little bit of extra funny for, to me because thinking back to how it, it felt like there's a lot of nostalgia that hit as I was watching this movie. Anyone um, have any favorite moments from the movie? I, I like the whole thing. I don't know. I'll, I'll I have to, to really mm. think if i had a favorite part but yeah, I, I mean john doing. wayne's teeth i honestly that part i actually was chuckling quite a lot just because of the song and i went just kind of gave me a happy feeling inside one line that sticks out to me that i kind of laughed at was when like at that part in the bus they got kind of pushed back to the back of the bus and it was just like five minutes earlier victor's talking about how he's got to put on a stoic face and look mean in order to get anything done and then that's then when they get pushed back to the back of the bus thomas responds oh i guess the stoic face doesn't always work he's like shut up like i said the dynamic between the two of them was uh really funny i really did enjoy that I think the the revelation, the scene at the end where they've realized that um, Arnold accidentally started the fire and ended up saving Victor from the fire, too. And the performances in that scene were pretty powerful as well. So I thought the whole I, I really enjoyed the movie quite a bit, actually. The, the scene on the bus, there's a lot of like really funny parts in it. I fully laughed out loud when Victor tells Thomas that he needs to be more stoic. And then they go to the gas station and Thomas walks out with his... Drive red bra- power with his yeah with spreads with his braids undone and a t-shirt that says fry red power on it <laughs> and i i burst out laughing like that was such a funny moment and the and the slow motion and the music under it yeah it was it was that's easily my favorite part in the film but um i really like the basketball scenes where his the father was talking about uh, facing off against these uh, priest basketball <laughs> players or something. Another, th- another thing that kind of ruined it for me, because like, you know how 
our friends, our group of friends, we're really bad for this, but I, I'm assuming it's other groups of friends where we, we will look at a scene and have an inside joke attached to the scene and we'll, and it'll be automatically funny, even though it isn't. So mm. growing up, there was this weird, people used to start cracking up during the scene where uh, they throw Thomas out the, out the window, the baby. And for some odd reason, I remember that being like, <laughs> I remember watching with groups and people would start laughing. People would see the baby fly out the window and they start laughing. And I remember being like, like, I get it, but it's like, uh, it's, it's hard to. And so as I was watching that scene, that, that, that was another memory that jumped in. I'm like, oh yeah, people used to laugh at the scene, uh, but it's also really sad. So that's really terrible. It's a really great film. I'm glad you guys got to see it. And so now you guys can you know, walk up to native people and be like, hey, Victor, and don't do that. Actually, that's seems- <laughs> yeah, no, that's something about it. <laughs> I would just be feel re- rude, like you're being racist to them. Hey, Victor, you're like, hey, stop being racist to me. So let me ask you guys a question. So now that you've read the book and this story is directly taken from the f- something in Phoenix, Arizona one, right? If you were to adapt any other stories, which ones would you consider adapting? I'd like to see the trial of Thomas builds the fire done in some way, just because it's so abstract. You get this feeling with Thomas that he's, I don't know if I want to say underdog, but kind of not, nobody really kind of pays attention to him. Or if they do, by the end of the time of the story happens, you feel like people are finally listening to all of his stories and what he's saying. And I, and that's kind of like the feeling I would like to see captured. Yeah. I mean, obviously my favorite, a common favorite for all of us was the the approximate size of my favorite tumor. And that would yes. be, a, I think that would be a pretty good one for a story too. The broken track, traffic life one would be a good one to probably be able to adapt as well into a story. It almost feels like it totally could be series, right? Like it could be. Yeah, that's what um, I was thinking. Like a CBC <laughs> series, you know, like or no, CBC, it takes place in the States. But um but like it definitely could be like like a half hour series, like almost like a sitcom. But it's such an interesting thing because specifically with Jesse with the trial of Thomas Builds the Fire, I would love to see something like that on screen. But at the same time, with stories like this, you know, like Sherman Alexi wrote the screenplay for Smoke Signal. So like he had a very direct control over what the movie was going to look like they need to be so considerate in the way that it's adapted the trial of thomas builds the fire particularly is you know there's so much in this book and there's so many of these stories that are so stream of consciousness and so poetic that like you could so easily lose something in the translation from written word to visual you're not going to get the same kind of effect um, it's weird. I actually did think about this when I was reading the book, and they're very far. They're they're books that are very far apart. But I thought of American Gods, which is a book that I love, and a TV series that I am, you know, lukewarm towards because the book is similarly um, to this book. Like there is a lot of poetic verse in it, and there's or there's a lot of it that seems very strange and very um, surrealistic. And it reads really well. But when the TV show adapts it, there's something about it that feels a little fake. Like it just feels a little too slick and too glossy and too like there. there's something about that that I don't enjoy. You know, like when you clean it up too much or when you try to make it too presentable, you lose something there. So so, yeah, I, I'm torn about it. It's one where I think it would be a really good series, but I also think like you need to be really smart about the way that you adapt it. Yeah, I actually, I no, that was gonna say that uh, had you not mentioned it, this, that this would be 
a really great uh, TV series. I wouldn't make it a half an hour comedy series. I'd make it like a series of like, like maybe 12, one hour, like comedy dramedies, that sort of thing. So like that, I was thinking about it because some of these ones are sequels or prequels of a similar story. So you could, you know, amalgamate them into a single. And then there are a couple of them like that are so out there that you'd have to, you'd have to devote entire episodes. Like the uh, train, the train in the order of occurrence where somebody dies from a train accident and, but he only shows up once in the, like that one's a really great one. And then there's distances where it takes place in the distant future or like a post-apocalypse distant future. And it's like Aboriginal futurism or whatever you call it. It's one of those things where as I was reading it, I'm like, oh, Thomas goes to the trial. It was crazy. I guess, uh, you know, let's jump to the next chapter. Oh, this takes place in the future. And you're just like, <laughs> like you're like, what the heck? This is this gets so crazy. But if I was to adapt one story, it would actually be distances because it's essentially science fiction, Aboriginal focused science fiction. And, and I would I would adapt that one if I was to adapt any one of these. So 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 WWE selections, is that uh yeah, um, absolutely. Let's get into our recurring segment, <laughs> um, recasting the work with WWE actors. Which uh, which WWE superstars would you want to see in an adaptation of? Uh, I, I I guess we'll just say Smoke Signals. Like if you were remaking Smoke Signals, who would you who would you cast in it? Yeah. Um, and now we all struggle to think of uh, of native. <laughs> Uh, WWE wrestlers, <laughs> like, Mickey James, right? Sorry, go ahead, Ashley. Oh yeah, Mickey James. Uh, all right, that's actually not a bad casting, I guess. Is Mickey James Native American? I didn't know. That. She's uh, a part. part. She, she, yeah, she's uh, her her grand her grandfather or grandmother was full blooded. So, oh, so she's a quarter or something like that. Um, but I, I'd still <laughs> accept her in this situation. <laughs> Tatanka. Yeah, I was gonna say there's a couple that I, I googled it, and I think Tatanka was one of the only one of the Tatanka, few. Was Tatanka actually Native American? I thought I think I'm he pretty had sure part. he is. I, I, think, I, I actually think he is okay. part. I think he's part at, at the very least. You know, who I maybe I'm thinking wrong. I I thought they said Kevin Nash was part too. Oh yeah, what? He's he's 100 percent actually. <laughs> maybe maybe I, I could be completely wrong, and I'm thinking of a different. I have over the past few months specifically probably for this podcast looked up wrestlers and their uh, <laughs> ethnicities to see you for casting reasons and i remember being like what kevin nash's and i thought it might have been like um it hard to say i can't really find a, a credible source on this yeah tatanka mickey james kevin nash kevin nash yeah, it's slim pickings out there for WWE actors. <laughs> so I would have it so that uh, Tatanka plays Arnold Joseph. Uh, Kevin Nash plays Victor Joseph. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. There's, prob- there's probably like a three-year gap between them, but sure. <laughs> they're both like the same age. And they're like, they're like uh, hey, son, uh, let's go play basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I just googled it. You know who is uh, Fandango is is Native American. Is he? Well, we have our Victor Joseph then, I guess. The he's, uh, uh, he's uh, part of the Cherokee tribe. The uh, wow. And then uh, so here, okay. Well, so the new ones: Tatanka, Arnold Joseph, Fandango, Victor Joseph, Kevin Nash, Thomas builds a fire. 
Perfect. And, yep. <laughs> Pitch perfect <laughs> casting. I, I would like to see Kevin Nash Kevin play in that Nash, role. As Thomas builds a fire. That's so absurd. But <laughs> and then Mickey James just plays. She like uh, she like polar expresses it and just plays all of the Aboriginal women characters and like uh, <laughs> not. Nah, I don't know. I like how you, you made a verb out of polar express. <laughs> polar expressed mickey uh mickey james yeah, i don't even know if uh if tatanka is an actual native person but go ahead uh what he, shows up, he shows up on my uh, on my list and i don't know if the list is just because he plays a native american character or if he actually is one but um it's kind of depressing when you look at like because i'm like oh what native american wrestlers are there not many you realize that they're very like it's a very underrepresented group within professional wrestling and when it is represented it's almost in a cartoonish, caricaturish way, which is pretty racist at the end of the day. Uh, I I do love that Becky James um, is, and 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 the fact is is she's actually like uses her her Aboriginal because she is she's actually a member of an Oklahoma tribe, I believe, and she uses a lot of her behind the scenes stuff to to really like like push Aboriginal. Uh, issues and stuff like that i really love the fact that that aspect about her character strangely enough i wasn't really a fan of her wrestling stuff but i'm kind of just a fan in general just because i know that that's a big part of what she cares about so so yeah to, to put a, a serious aspect to uh, <laughs> and so does kevin nash actually kevin nash is like yeah i'm native yeah, so you're right. <laughs> <laughs> anyways any, anything else you guys want to add <laughs> um uh, i think that about covers it so yeah, good yeah. times. Uh, so do do the outro, I guess. Thanks for joining us, everyone, on another episode of Page and Screen. We hope you tune in next time when our pick will be. It's Ashton's turn. Ashton. Yeah. Uh, I picked In the Grove and uh, Rashomon. Excellent. Kira Kurosawa and uh, I can't remember who wrote In the Grove, but. Cool. I'm very yeah. excited. So In the Grove is our next. Uh, read along if you'd like. Um, watch Rashomon and uh, we'll talk about it on the next page and screen. Special thanks to me and my friend for creating all the music you hear on the show. Check out more of their music by visiting meandmyfriend.bandcamp.com If you like our show, go ahead and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you really like us, leave us a review and a rating. That would really help us out. Feel free to connect with us on social media. We are at Page and Screen 1 on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can also search Page and Screen on YouTube where you can watch a video version of this show. We post regular updates of all the books we read and all the movies we watch. And we would love to hear your thoughts on all of them. We're not the only ones who can offer our unwarranted opinions, so chime in and join the conversation. And finally, make sure you spread the word about the show. For all the book nerds and film geeks in your life, pass this on. We would love to reach them. Maybe you know someone who operates a pirate radio station. Well, they have our permission to broadcast this episode. Until the next page and screen, thank you for listening.